All right. Uh, you want to go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Um, and as you're flipping over there, I'll just go ahead and, and say this. Um, this morning I want all of us to sincerely ponder a question. Um, and it may seem somewhat strange that I would ask this question in a Christian church, but I'm going to. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? In our text, we're going to be picking up in verse 13. So it's Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. And we'll read through the end of the chapter, but our preaching text is going to be through verse 20. <clears throat> it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have preserved this word and that you've brought it to us in our native language and we're able to read it. 
It's a gift that I think we oftentimes take for granted because in our lives it's always been there and as far as we know it always will be. But it's historically not been the case. So help us to honor the fact that we have your word. We can understand your word. And now I pray that you would help me as I try to exposit this text. pray that you would get my human frailness and weakness out of the way and that you would get your message to your people. I pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Alright, so just to kind of give you a little background on what's going on here. Okay, because we just kind of picked up when he's having the conversation, didn't really talk about where we were or what we were doing. Um, at the time of this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, the disciples had already witnessed many wonderful things. They had heard Jesus' preaching, including the Sermon on the Mount. And they had seen many of his miracles, including numerous healings, the feeding of the 5,000 and the later feeding of the 4,000, his walking on water, and even his commanding the calming of a storm. And they had experienced confrontation with the religious leaders of the day. In fact, this passage itself follows an exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees in which the latter were demanding a sign from Jesus. Back up to the beginning of chapter 16. That's what you'll read about. And then Jesus would warn his disciples following that confrontation, he would warn his disciples to beware of the false teachings of those men. So that is the background and the backdrop for what we are considering here this morning. So with that in mind, the passage begins with Jesus asking his disciples who the people say that he is. The disciples' answer makes it clear that at the very least, the people living in Palestine at that time recognized that Jesus was not an ordinary man. It seems the people speculated that Jesus was at the very least a prophet. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, was the answer that came. So, at this time, the Israelite people at least had some understanding that Jesus was something special from God. Even Jesus' enemies understood he was no ordinary man. Prior to his conversion, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, he's described as, came to Jesus by night and he confessed these words, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The we there, the we that knows, most likely refers to the Pharisees because that's how Nicodemus was described, a man of the Pharisees. And then perhaps it also could refer to the Sanhedrin because Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. So, at any rate, Nicodemus was speaking as part of a group of Jewish leaders who were opposed to Jesus. Perhaps two groups. Yet, whoever the we is, they know Jesus is a teacher from God because they can't refute the signs that he's doing. 
And yet, despite this, there were still those who regarded Jesus as a blasphemous, Sabbath-breaking, lying, demon-possessed drunkard. The high priest and the Sanhedrin over which he resided would eventually falsely convict Jesus of blasphemy. Because, as we read so often in John's Gospel, he was making himself equal with God. He was claiming to be the Son of God. And they felt this was blasphemous. God is one, is He not? Well, yes, yes He is. They did not understand, though. Jesus was telling the truth. Had He been lying, they would have been right. He would have been a blasphemer. But He wasn't. Several other theories abound in our day. <clears throat> Just as the majority of Jews in Jesus' day would eventually reject Him as a blasphemous, false messiah, so the majority of practicing Jews reject him for the same reasons today. According to the Islamic religion, Jesus was a great prophet who never actually died, but rather was taken up into heaven. Just consumed up into heaven without dying. Mormonism holds that he is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jehovah's Witnesses believe he is the archangel Michael. Many believe Jesus was simply a great teacher of morality and piety. Liberals believe he was some sort of feminist hippie guru who taught that God loves everyone equally and we should just all get along, man. Others believe Jesus was insane, a madman. They understand his claims. They understand that he most likely believed his claims. They just think he was insane for believing those things. And there were still others who claim against both the infallible testimony of sacred scripture and the consensus of most historians that Jesus of Nazareth never really existed at all. Man, with all his theories about Jesus, looks exceedingly foolish once you realize that even the demons know who he is. How many theories did I just list to you? Several. But even the demons know, in fact, who Jesus is. Notice when you are reading the New Testament that there is never a time that Jesus has a run-in with a demon where the demon has to ask, Who are you? That never happens, not once. And he has several run-ins with demons. The words of the demon which are recorded in Luke 4.34 speak for all as a summary statement. The demon said, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And this brings us to Jesus' follow-up question. He began by asking who the people say that he was. So, what's the popular consensus is basically the first question. But now, he gets a little more personal. He asks, but who do you say that I am? So, we, we've answered the question, what is... What is the popular consensus? What are people saying about me? Now, what do you think about me? 
And that's the question I want us all to be thinking about now. And really, I'm going to encourage you in the days ahead. I hope that you don't just, as soon as we say amen, shut your brains off and never think of this again. This is one of the absolute most important questions that you could ever be faced with. It says, who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus hinted at the true answer in his initial question when he asked who people say the Son of Man is. He didn't say, who am I? He didn't say, who is Jesus? He said, who do people say the Son of Man is? So he is ascribing a title to himself by doing that. And that title, Son of Man, would have pointed them back to Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, where we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So that's how Jesus viewed himself. He is this Messiah, the one who goes to the Ancient of Days. Who do you know who has the power to just go to the Ancient of Days? He views himself as the one who is given dominion from the Father who is the Ancient of Days. He's given glory from the Father. He's given a kingdom which consists of all peoples, nations, and languages. And of course, kingdoms serve their king. So this is to be a global kingdom, a universal church. This is an everlasting dominion. This is a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. That's Jesus' self-view. So now, Peter, as the spokesman of the twelve, is tasked with answering this question, Who do you say that I am? And he rightly answers Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. At least on some level. And we read the passage that follows. So we know Peter didn't completely have it down yet. But at least on some level, Peter understood exactly who Jesus was. He was the long-awaited Messiah. Come to save his people. Not merely from the political dominion of the Roman Empire. And maybe that's where Peter was going wrong but from the shackles of sin and Satan and death and hell and the grave. And not only was he the Messiah, but the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter knew Jesus was God incarnate. Scripture indicates Peter knew this from the time Jesus called him to follow. 
In Luke's Gospel, we read of Peter's calling. Peter and his men had toiled all night uh, trying to catch fish. And they had done so in vain. Nothing. They've labored all night. Nothing. And Jesus told them to cast their nets in the deep again. And though he had doubts, Peter did so. He obeyed. And then they caught so many fish that the nets began to break. And they had to have help from their partners in the other boat to bring in the fish. So we went from having no fish to now we don't have, uh, we don't have enough manpower in this boat to get all the fish. We have to have help from another boat. We don't have enough room in this boat. We have to have help from another boat. Um, and so Peter's response to this is what I want you to see. It says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter understood he was in the presence of a holy God at that point. And of course, Jesus did not depart from him. Instead, he called Peter to be a fisher of men, just as he calls us to be. Now, when directly asked by Jesus, Peter verbalizes what he has known since that time. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, notice, Jesus does not rebuke Peter. He does not say, what a preposterous answer. Don't you know God cannot become a man? Rather, he affirms the truth of Peter's confession and declares him blessed. And he would go on to describe his mission as the Messiah to the disciples in verses 21 through 23, which I'm going to read again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So this is his work as Messiah. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's his work as Messiah. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And not only does Jesus affirm that uh, this is his own view of himself, but he tells Peter, this is from God. It is God the Father that knows him in this way. We see the Father both at the baptism of our Lord and in his transfiguration audibly saying this in Peter's presence. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus then answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So what I want you to see here is that a right view of Jesus is a blessing from God. It's not something that we use our mental capacity to arrive at without divine enabling. Scripture says that man is dead in his sins and trespasses, and that his mind is at enmity with God. 
The Holy Spirit must regenerate or make us to be born again for us to see Christ and ourselves rightly. Jesus said elsewhere, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And he said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And by extension, he cannot understand who its king is. Not rightly, anyway. So why does this question matter? Especially why would I ask this in a Christian church? We would uh, assume that in a Christian church that everybody already believes Jesus is Christ and that he is the son of the living God. So why does this question matter? Well, if we continue in the passage, Jesus says in verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter and Petros. That's the Greek, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus uses a play on words here which might be missed when we read it in English. The Greek word used for Peter is Petros, which means a stone or pebble. So a small rock, basically. However, Christ says he will build his church upon the Petra, which is the Greek word for a mass of connected rocks. In other words, Peter, you are a small pebble, but the confession you have made about me is a solid, massive rock which will serve as the sure foundation for the building of my church. Or perhaps it could be understood this way. Peter, you alone are a small pebble, but you as the representative figure for all my apostles who will carry this message about me to the world will serve as the foundation of my church. At any rate, the confession that Peter has made is central. There's debate about whether the Petra is referring to Peter himself, Peter is representative of the apostles, or the confession. Well, even if it is referring to Peter, or Peter as representative of the apostles, they're the foundation of the church precisely because they take that confession out. That's what would make them the foundation. So, the first reason why it matters is because the answer to this question, or I should say the true, correct answer to this question, is the very foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, remember how we mentioned a few moments ago that According to Daniel, the Son of Man is one who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We see Jesus asserting such to be the case himself. He promises that he will certainly build his church. It's a definitive statement. There is no doubt or wiggle room. If it's not built, Jesus was a liar. That I mean, there's no escape clause. He said plainly, he will most certainly build his church, with its foundations being either Peter's confession of faith, or again, Peter is representative of the apostles, 
who advance that same confession of faith. And not only will he build it, but the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That's a promise. And he who is truth itself cannot lie. Let me ask you a question. What's the purpose of a gate? It's a defense mechanism, right? We want to use gates to keep people or critters or some other threat out, right? The kingdom of Satan is not on the offensive here. We're not in our holy huddle in a horrible world and helpless and waiting for Jesus because there's nothing we can do. It's not what he says. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In other words, the kingdom of Satan is not to be on the offensive. Rather, the church is the one that's storming the gates. We serve the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. So why would we be in retreat? We have every reason in the world to face the world confidently because we serve the one who has all authority and power. This is his story. He's the one that's writing it. We have every reason to be confident. We have every reason to confront the world that is under the dominion of Satan. Because we have a promise. We're going to win. That doesn't mean that it's just going to be steamrolling and we're not going to have any sort of difficulties or anything like that. No, war is always hard even when you win. But what's described here is that we win the war. Which means we should be waging the war. And we do that with this word. We do this in the confidence that our king is just that, king. He has the authority. He has the power to overcome. He works through his church to build his church. And perhaps even in that way, that, 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 I mean, that would explain it. The apostles take this message out, yes, and it builds. And then we take this message out and it builds. And we don't retreat. We don't apologize when they tell us to quit. <laughs> Quit being mean. How could Jesus be the only way? Quit being arrogant. How could Jesus be the only way? All of the world religions and you're so confident that you're... Yes. Because this is rooted in history. This really happened. And it's really happening. So I do want you to take away from it. Be confident. Go out into the world. Confront the evil of the world. Call people to repent. 
Jesus has called us to do that, and He's called us to do that on the basis of His all-encompassing authority. Why wouldn't we? Second, in answering why does this why does this question matter? Second, it matters because our lives, both the existence of our lives and how we use the life we have been given, depend on how we answer this question, both now and for all eternity. Uh, look back down there in uh, verse 24 for me, and we'll read through uh, 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And Jesus makes it clear that to truly follow him is not easy. So, first reason I gave you is reasons for confidence. And not only reasons for confidence, but a command to go forward and do something. To fight. Of course, spiritually speaking. We're not, we're not throwing hands. But, <clears throat> to spiritually fight. Well, here... We're told the fight may not be easy. In fact, it won't. So we have confidence we're going to win. But we can also know it's going to take something to get to that win. So this means you must take up your cross. Not every once in a while. Not every Sunday. But every single day. Following Jesus into the rejection of the world, persecution, and possibly even death. As Protestant Christians, we believe in the five solas of the Reformation. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and infallibly revealed in Holy Scripture alone. The faith alone. Sola fide. That component is one over which there has been much confusion and misunderstanding. Opponents of the doctrine often believe it to be the equivalent of an idea that we've talked about a good bit lately, antinomianism. And again, that word breaks down into anti-against and nomian the law. So it means to be against the law, particularly the law of God. Another name for it is easy believism. This is the idea that salvation is gained through mere intellectual assent to certain facts about Jesus. In other words, I see the facts, I understand the facts are true, I admit that the facts are true and now I will go live my wicked sinful life how I want to because I have faith in Jesus and he is now in, uh, he is contractually obligated to take me to heaven and it doesn't matter how I live because I have faith in Jesus and therefore I'm going to heaven. That's the idea. And if you're sitting there thinking how ridiculous that sounds, please understand I have no statistics to back this up. But it is my opinion that that is most likely the majority view where we live. 
So it's very important that we're talking about this. If you're sitting there thinking it's ridiculous, you're right, it is. It's not the biblical gospel, but it is one of the things we are to be fighting. That's part of the storming that we're supposed to be doing of hell's gates. We saw earlier that even the demons believe and give intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The reformers recognized this and understood that saving faith in Jesus Christ contains three components. And I've talked about this here before, but we're going to talk about it again. I'm going to give you the Latin terms, but I don't really care if you remember the Latin terms. I mainly want you to remember the concepts that the terms represent. So if you can't remember that, that's fine. I don't really care. It's fine. Just make sure you understand what it means. First, there is the notitia. This references the content of the Christian faith. We do not accept the modern notions that it does not matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely or that all religions ultimately lead to God just by different paths. The Christian faith has a specific and exclusive content which must be believed for a person to be saved. All roads do not lead to God, at least not savingly. There is only one. The next part of saving faith is called the ascensus. The ascensus is exactly what it sounds like. This is to give assent to the content of the Christian faith. Someone could perfectly know the notitia, the content of the Christian faith, and still reject its truth. A person must believe the content of the Christian faith is actually true before he can be justified in God's sight. But there is yet a third part of saving faith. Again, possessing these first parts alone is enough to put you on the same level as the demons. Even the demons believe and shudder, as James declares. Satan and his demons know the content of the Christian faith. They further know that the content of the Christian faith is true. (coughs) But with every fiber of their beings, they hate it. They oppose it. If they could destroy it, they would. There's one thing which separates a living, vibrant, saving faith from this dead kind of faith. And this is called the fiducia. It's fun to say, fiducia. Louis Burkhoff said of this element of faith, quote, While the Roman Catholic stressed the fact that justifying faith is merely assent and has its seat in the understanding, The reformers generally regarded it as fiducia, or trust, having its seat in the will, end quote. So did you catch that, the difference there? The idea here is that of personal affection and trust in Christ and his atoning work. It's not just something that we intellectually understand. It goes deeper than that. 
Although I first heard this analogy from my uncle, I believe it was actually D. James Kennedy who originally used the analogy of a chair to show the difference between mere intellectual assent and truly saving faith. And every single time that I go to use this example, I forget to grab a chair. So just imagine that I grabbed one, okay? <laughs> and um, imagine I take this chair and I set it right here beside me, right? And then... Well, I would ask you, this is a chair. You agree? Of course you would. You know what a chair is. So at this point, I'm telling you that I believe there is a chair here. Right? Okay, now I'm telling you that I believe if I were to sit in this chair, it would hold my weight. And I really believe it will hold my weight. I'm giving my intellectual assent to the idea that the chair is capable of holding my weight. But my faith is nothing more than an intellectual assent until I actually sit myself down in the chair, showing that I have an active confidence in the chair to uphold my weight. That's the difference the fiducia makes. Until I actually sit down, it's just an idea. Now, many of you might ask, how do you know that I have that kind of faith? I know I struggled with that for a large portion of my life. I know the facts of the gospel. I believe they're true. How do I know that I really trust and love him? So I have good news for you. Jesus told us how to know that. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. So not only you, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, do you have love for the brethren? Do you have love for the brethren here? Do you have love for the brethren of other congregations? Because... This is a local church, but I think the church that Jesus is talking about is the universal church that we confess weekly. Jesus also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. <clears throat> Scripture says that among the reasons God saves us is for us to do good works which glorify him. Make sure you catch the order there too. We're not saved by doing good works. We're saved and then we do good works. We're saved to do good works. And good works are those which glorify the Father. And those which glorify the Father are those He has commanded. And those He has commanded are God's law. So we don't accept antinomianism. We are pro-God's law. Salvation is by Christ alone. But saving faith is described for us in James chapter 2. I actually want to read that passage. Let me flip over there real quick. James chapter 2, picking up in verse 14. Verse 
pages will quit sticking together. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and then we'll skip down to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And here it is. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And then let's uh, go down to verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So faith is shown to be true by works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are the Father's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And there are many more passages like that throughout the Scriptures, but hopefully you get the point. We're saved by Christ alone. By faith in Christ alone. We are joined to Him by the gift of faith alone. We are saved to live our lives for Him. We find eternal rest in Christ so that we can do eternal work for Christ. One final point on why this matters and we'll close. Who you identify Jesus to be matters because he's coming back to consummate his kingdom. Whatever view the end times you take, one thing we all must know for certain is that God the Father's plan from all eternity has been this, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things in earth. After his resurrection, Jesus told the disciples that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him, and he reigns now. He is building his church. And as soon as the building is finished, he will return to consummate the kingdom and rule in the midst of his people for eternity. Do you know this, Jesus? This Jesus. Do you know this Jesus that we've been talking about this morning? If you don't, talk to somebody after the service. I'll talk to you. I know there are other faithful brothers and sisters here who will also talk to you. But don't, please don't walk away leaving that question unanswered. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Your eternal destination depends on it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for this revelation that you've given us, this holy word, the scriptures. We thank you that we are able to hear infallibly 
your voice telling us who we are and who you are and who Jesus is and the grace that you give us by telling us how we can be made right through him. Father, I pray that if there is anyone within the sound of my voice that does not know you in a saving way, I pray that they would. I pray that you would save them. And I pray for all of us who do know who Jesus is and we have trusted him savingly. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to fight, spiritually fight, to overthrow strongholds, to do exactly what we've been promised we will do, to storm hell's gates and overcome them. But not for our glory, not to make a name for ourselves, but for the name of Jesus Christ, the King of our kingdom. We pray in His name. Amen.